Hello and welcome to another edition of the Village's Daily Sun Sports Podcast. We're throwing out the rundown. We are completely, as of this morning, reworking our plan for today's podcast. Just to take you behind the curtain for a moment, we got huge news today out of the golf world as the PGA, DP World Tour, and Live Tours will all be merging into some sort of golf super league of One some sort. One happy family! <laughs> Allegedly. So uh, we'll talk about that. That is going to be our lead segment as that is the biggest story in sports this week. And uh, we'll move the regular golf talk to the second segment of today's show and then we'll finish up talking about the villages sc so drew shaltry and jeff shane with you in studio today and jeff we're just going to get right into it there's a lot that we don't know yet this news broke this morning we're actually recording tuesday afternoon a few hours after our normal uh, session time uh, that worked out because of some scheduling conflicts that we had prior but uh, it allowed us just a little bit of time to gather some information some initial reactions to the big announcement from the pga tour this morning and i'll be honest with you i don't even know where to start as far as the talking points on this but i i think the the biggest thing is just that this was a surprise to pretty much everyone to the golf media to the players on the pga tour and it, it certainly caught us off guard this morning as well. i think it caught everybody that was not involved in those negotiations off balance and it was kind of funny to read some of the initial player reaction because it was probably a lot like your reaction certainly like my reaction where it was essentially no freaking way does does this yeah. happen after all this acrimony to find out that they have actually somehow buried their swords not in each other's backs but to be able to put together at least the framework of a resolution and a merger um i don't think anybody re- thought that we would get this far maybe ever and certainly not this fast yeah this has seemingly come together very quickly just a couple weeks ago it still seemed like the litigation was moving forward and that's one of the big things with this is that it's ending all litigation both sides are dropping all of their um their their cases against the other and so they're they're going to move forward apparently in harmony but uh that's we think that supposedly that's i I still think this is a dysfunctional family about to happen yeah there's there's something here that again we're going to get more details on this as time goes along and i'm sure that there's a reporter who's going to get a big story about how this actually came to be which side ended up caving on something i think that you know again we're doing a lot of guessing right now we're going to try to limit conjecture and speculation in this but uh i mean it kind of seems like Liv was losing a little bit in the legal battles. There was a lot of, you know, things that were being requested in discovery that they were contesting that they shouldn't have to and didn't want to reveal. And so I'm wondering how much that came into play, if they were going to have to drop those lawsuits and get countersued by the PGA Tour. And if they were in danger of losing that battle, if this was a way for them to kind of save themselves some of that. Uh, but I, I don't know. Both sides here, it seems like, are making certain concessions. Um, the, the PGA Tours are mostly just kind of backing off of the stance that it's taken uh, over the last year and a half or so for the Saudis, the idea that they could be this independent upstart challenger to the PGA Tour. And then also, again, the legal battles that they seem to be uh, falling onto the losing side of. And let me throw out, in terms of the legal battles concerned, and you make a very good point about there were certain parts of the books that I'm sure the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia did not want mm-hmm. exposed in a courtroom in the United States. I will also posit that there are probably some things on the books of the PGA Tour 
that they do not want exposed, especially when it comes to the fact that remember that the PGA Tour also is under congressional investigation for antitrust violations. So this takes all of that off the plate. I think both sides, to a certain extent, save face legally that they don't have to delve into their books. Yeah, there's some you know, stuff that I, I think you're right, that both sides probably wanted to avoid a little bit. So in, in some sense, it's, it's a win for both sides. And certainly financially, this is probably going to make a lot of people a lot more wealthy. Uh, but it does, it does put um, Jay Monahan in an interesting position. I think that he just both made himself far less popular with his players, but also probably got some job security, security out of it, given that he's kind of orchestrated this whole thing. And now he kind of has to see it through. Uh, So it's going to be interesting to see how the next couple of months play out as this kind of develops and we figure out what exactly is going to go into this merger. And I think, too, that that both sides kind of got where they wanted to be in terms of this new hierarchy. The the public investment fund and their primary uh, chairman are going to become the underwriters of the PGA Tour and the chairman of this new board of directors of whatever they pronounce this entity. They've never really wanted to be in the forefront. They can be in the background here. And Jay Monahan, who is used to being the guy out front, is the CEO, the the day-to-day operations guy. He continues to be out front. And so, again, a little bit of both sides getting where they want to be in terms of how to make this work um, I do find it very interesting that the PGA Tour was willing to give away quite a bit of, of power to yes. say that uh, the the PIF head is going to be the chairman of this new board of directors. I think that one thing we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, and there's a players meeting scheduled for this afternoon, and I almost wish that we were recording later tonight because I think that there's going to be some immediate reaction coming out of that uh, that's going to give us a, a more complete picture of how a lot of uh, the guys on the tour feel about what happened today. I think the biggest thing for them right now, though, is that they weren't informed, that they had no idea that this was coming. There was a meeting between the player advisory committee and a bunch of the players in Columbus this past weekend during the memorial and Jay Monahan and a few PGA Tour executives came, and this was not brought up at all. This wasn't even mentioned. So, I mean, yes, it's possible that this came together over the last 48 hours or something like that, but that seems kind of unlikely. And again, the the reaction from the players that we've seen online, that we've seen uh, you know, reported uh, through various outlets, is they're all stunned by this. No one had any inclination whatsoever this is coming, which is also very off-brand for what we've seen from golf in the last couple of years, where there are these inklings, where the, these small leaks and hints that things are coming. This is the most uh, shocking thing and the least prepared that we've been for a big development like this in the golf world. Jay Monahan told the Associated Press in a phone interview earlier today that the framework of this actually started taking shape, get this, seven weeks ago. And so for them and the uh, LIV entities, and to be able to keep everything under wraps for almost two months is really an amazing accomplishment. And, and you have to think, uh, especially with the reaction that's coming from the, the membership of the tour, 
that this was a very, very tight circle. This was need to know only type stuff. And for it to come together and and I'm sure I'm sure that uh, we'll find out more of this as we go along. But this is something that, again, has to be so detailed. And even just to get to this point, it really did need maybe it didn't need seven weeks. I bet it needed at least four to really put together framework and uh, negotiations. We'll do this if you'll do this. Um, that this is as high level negotiations as maybe we've ever seen on the sporting front. Maybe, it, you know, since the AFL NFL merger, maybe, uh, maybe even this surpasses that, but, uh, th- this is almost like, I, I, I hate to go into a little bit of hyperbole, but this is like some sort of, you know, international high level, you know, governmental, you know, summit. This is G7 type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it is, um, like you said, just logistically, this is an an insane thing to put together just in terms of the number of moving parts, coordinating all of this. There has to be some kind of framework in place. There was too much at stake for these two teams to go in blind with each other and say, yeah, we'll just we'll work it out later. Like there has to be something already figured out. Obviously, a lot of the finer details are going to have to get ironed out in the you know coming weeks and months and stuff like that. Both of these tours are going to finish their seasons as scheduled as of right now. But yeah, it's uh, for a a tour and entity that is you know nominally run by its players they seem to have very little input on this and one thing that i'm interested to see is this will require approval from the pga tour policy board and i'm wondering if there will be any kind of snags it seems like uh, this is something that the the tour and certainly Jay Monahan are going to try to try to push through. But I'm wondering what those discussions will be like, and uh, you know, how easily this is going to get by that board. Well, the policy board is made up of really two entities. A mm-hmm. uh, little less than half is uh, the player uh, entity, and then the other side of that is Monahan and the tour uh, uh, top tour officials and top sponsor officials. And so even if there's a little bit of pushback from the players side of things, I think Monaghan will probably be able to line up the non-player parts of the policy board enough to be able to push this through. No way that it's a unanimous vote. I can't see that. Uh, Maybe they'll announce it as a unanimous vote just because it was six to three and they want to provide a look of a more unified front. Okay, I'll have to change my vote. But I cannot see this thing being unanimously approved in the actual vote behind closed doors. Well, and I just think that the way that things have gone with the last you know, again, year and a half, I don't think that the players will fall in line and do the vote change. My guess is right now that they will kind of stand up for the fact that they weren't part of this discussion, weren't part of this decision. And I mean, frankly, you know, this has been seven weeks. Jay Monahan's kind of hung some guys out there to dry. Justin Thomas, Rory McIlroy, Matt Fitzpatrick, the guys who have been most outspoken about this, who have gone to bat for the PGA Tour and the prestige of the PGA Tour and are have sort of taken a moral high ground in these conversations about Liv and the guys that have defected and stuff like that. And now seven weeks supposedly into these discussions, they're being told, oh, yeah, we're actually we're good with LIV now. Like you guys, thanks for thanks for standing out there and, and you know, toting our banner. But we're we're backing off of that now. I will say this, though. And now, you know, it'll be hard to make a dotted line, a solid line here. But 
Remember last week how Rory McIlroy all of a sudden was not interested in talking about LIV golf anymore. I'm just kind of tired of the entire subject. Mm -hmm. I don't want to really go into it any further. We hadn't heard a lot from Justin Thomas about LIV golf. Um, can't say where Matthew Fitzpatrick necessarily stands. It was probably two weeks prior was his comment about never letting the um – the guys who defected to live come back. I yeah. th- that was his opinion. I think he gave maybe two or three weeks ago. Yeah. So, so all of a sudden there, there did seem to be a certain muting of certain prominent voices. Were they briefed? I think that's a legitimate question. Were they yeah. briefed? You don't, you don't necessarily have to come out all of a sudden make nicey nicey, but just don't fan the flames mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, certainly I don't think the LIV guys had any sort of knowledge because uh, Phil Mickelson has actually ramped up his Twitter uh, baiting here in the last few weeks. We saw some certain amount of that. We saw that certain amount of Bryson DeChambeau uh, after Brooks Kepka's win. Uh, you know, this proves that we're not has-beens, that we're not washed up, that we care just as much as we ever did. And, uh, you know, they, they caught a lot of flack about it. But all of a sudden, uh, now all of a sudden, they, they look even more justified than maybe they were before. And I, I just, uh, no truth to the rumor, I suppose, that the announcement was not on golfchannel.com for about an hour after it was done and i understand no truth to the rumor that the delay was caused by picking pieces of brandel shambley's brain off the walls of the studio <laughs> yeah um yeah, he's he's certainly <laughs> uh i maybe doesn't have as much of a right to be but will certainly be one of the aggrieved parties in in this whole situation, but oh, I understand he's already catching. This is a bad day yes. for Brandel Chambly on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just a couple of the details that we do know. Some things that are going to come with this merger. Uh, the PGA has said they're going to find a way to integrate team golf. Uh, we don't know yet what that's going to look like. Again, we can guess. Maybe it's some kind of concurrent series of events. Something that would have been, uh, you know, similar to. Um, the World Golf Championships or something like that, where we have a team format on certain weeks that don't conflict with designated events, the biggest uh, you know, majors, obviously, and some of the bigger events on the tour. I'm wondering if that's sort of the direction that they'll take that. I would think so. I th- The only way to make team golf really work is to have the biggest names involved, which means that you can't have them play opposite a designated event And actually, I'm starting to wonder, as I'm thinking out loud here, practically, we have certain events that we know are going to be locked in. The majors, the players, uh, the legacy events, you know, Arnold Palmer Invitational, the Memorial, uh, the Genesis Invitational with Tiger and all of that. So that takes up a certain amount of, of the space. But there's always those four designated events that are kind of wild cards you know that this year have been uh, the rbc heritage and the travelers championship is it possible and again thinking out loud but is it possible that some of those designated event slots now become the team event slots uh, where they don't necessarily have to uh, elevate one you know b-level 
event into a designated event, but those all of a sudden become LIV Golf Orlando and LIV Golf Singapore and LIV Golf DC. Yeah, and maybe it's something where you know, obviously there are the team standings and team results at each LIV event. Maybe you end up with some kind of series long thing that has a you know a championship tournament similar to like the FedEx Cup, but for the teams, I don't know exactly what this could look like. This does open up a ton of possibilities for it. Yeah. Just because again, if you're getting all the best guys in the in golf to form these teams, you can do a whole lot with it. And if the the goal over the last year and change has been to grow the game, put good events on TV, get eyeballs on it, then replacing some of those events with a team competition where you've got Ricky Fowler and Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas going against Dustin Johnson and Bryson DeChambeau and whoever else on a team. Like that's, that's a good, I'm not trying to align LIV guys as against PGA guys there, but I mean, just players that we've seen, you know, kind of group up together in the past. And it would be, you know, something I'd certainly want to watch just from a, a fan of golf perspective. So uh, there are a lot of different ways that they can take that. And that kind of leads me into one of the next points is they, Jay Monahan said today that one of the things that they'll be figuring out is what the process will be for getting the defectors to live back onto the PGA tour. And he said, it's going to have to align with established PGA tour rules and regulations but that the process will be fair and objective, quote unquote. And so, you know, but we're going to see a, a way for those guys to come back. And, um, you know, I <laughs> got to wonder if there's going to be some tension with guys like Matt Fitzpatrick, who said, no, they should never come back. If, and I think that there's going to be uh, some friction between the league and some of those guys who, again, passed up the money, passed up the opportunity for the lighter schedule and everything else. And then, uh, you know, did it to champion the PGA Tour and did so out of maybe some fear that they wouldn't be able to play on you know the most prestigious tour on the planet and then those guys who did go take the big payday are going to get to come back i think if if somebody wanted to be a victim you could find a way to to make it you know whether no matter which side of the fence you're on but i think at the same time and and we saw this as the year has evolved that there's a certain weariness that started to set in mid-spring. We're tired of talking about this. I do kind of really miss my buddy, uh, uh, you know, Brooks Kepka. Yeah. I think Brooks, you know, would be great to have back on this tour, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I think that in the fraternity of high-level elite professional golfers, um, they really didn't want to go at each other's throats. Right. They would love to have found a way to coexist without all of the noise actually coming from the corporate offices in West Palm Beach and Ponte Vedra, right? Yeah, and I, I think to, to some extent, you know, there, it's not as much animosity between the players necessarily. You know, the, the guys who didn't like each other before the split you know, still didn't like each other. And maybe that got more fraught in some situations like Rory and Patrick Reed, I don't think have a a good deal of love for each other. Bryson DeChambeau and some of the other guys on the tour, but you know, Brooks Koepka and Rory played that practice round at the masters. And that was a a big deal in the news the week leading up. And Rory said, you know, I don't hate Brooks, you know, Brooks and I still were neighbors. We play together. You know, we're two of the best in the game. We want to, you know, watch each other play, play against each other and see what the other one's doing, learn from each other. So uh, there is, you know, a, a certain deal 
deal of you know respect among the players still, but I, I do think that you know some things have been said that will you know have to be walked back at this point. That uh, you know Matt Fitzpatrick, who I don't know how many you know close friends he had on the tour already because he was a little bit of an outsider. You know, being from England doesn't have a lot of his countrymen on the tour, and you know with these guys coming back is somebody you know in his peer group going to be more likely to you know, go to bat for him than they are for uh, Dustin Johnson or Brooks Kepka or somebody that they've known for years coming back over, even if, you know, more quietly they landed with Matt Fitzpatrick a few weeks ago. So I just think that there's, you know, all of these subtle and strange dynamics that are going to be playing out over the next you know months and years as this kind of works its way through. But it's it's just been such a strange couple of years to end up in this particular spot for a lot of these guys, I think. Yeah, and, and I think, too, and I've been asking this in the back of my mind, was there a specific catalyst? Uh, legal issues aside, which I'm sure was a big thing, but was there a specific catalyst on course, perhaps, that finally brought these guys t- closer together as well. I'm sure the lawyers were saying, you know, we better be careful about this, and this could expose us to some something we don't want to have. But at some point, you know, some something something had to happen that either made Jay Manahan pick up the phone and call Greg Norman or the other way around. And I'm sure it had to be that way because I think if Greg Norman had called Monahan, he wouldn't have taken the call. Well, I don't think Greg Norman was actually consulted in any of this. <laughs> Apparently he found out from Yasir Al-Rahman okay. today yeah, all after, right. after it happened, like before Jay Monahan went public with it. But Greg Norman apparently was just informed by phone this morning. So I don't think he was actually kept part him of this. Out of the loop and too. it did seem a little bit like Liv was kind of setting Greg Norman to the side a little bit. Mm. And it did almost seem like they were kind of trying to reduce the tensions. Now looking back on it over the last couple of months, he's taken less and less of a, of a front seat, been in the spotlight a little bit less. And yeah. uh, it, there were rumors that they were thinking of kind of pushing him out as the face of the live tour. So that all tracks now with what we know about uh, where we ended up. Yeah. And let, let me throw this. If we are to take Jay Monahan at his word, and this, this has been seven weeks in the making, what took place seven weeks ago? That was right after the Masters. And even though Brooks Kepka did not win the Masters, he and Phil Mickelson tied for second. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that became a little bit of a catalyst, much like, say, Super Bowl three was. And, and Joe Namath's kind of proving to the NFL, we are just as good as you guys. And then, you know, fast forward four weeks or five weeks, and now Brooks Kepka wins a major. And now the count for majors is LIV2, PGA Tour 2. I think both sides don't want to have that constant comparison going on. And so uh, I just wonder if, if you know, Brooks Kepka goes down as the modern day Joe Namath or yeah. Julius Irving in terms of a player that is able to move the needle. Well, and I think, you know, also back to that kind of timing before the Masters, there were rumors, there were reports, players that, you know, speaking anonymously, but were saying that they almost regretted going to live in a couple of cases that they missed playing against some of the good golfers on the PGA Tour, which is, again, what a lot of the PGA Tour guys said as well. But there was some talk about disorganization, live problems with sponsors being able to get permission to use video and imagery and stuff like that from tournaments. And so there were some some tensions 
questions from the golfers on the live tour as well that mm -hmm. they missed how organized the PGA was, how sponsor friendly it was, and some of that stuff. And you know, they were there were some regrets about moving over. And so I wonder if the Masters was kind of an impetus on that side too for them to for those players at least to go to them and say, hey, like we're we're not enjoying the experience over here right now. We came over thinking that we were going to get to grow our brands and do all these things. And you're, the organization over here is not as complete as we were led to believe it would be. It was rushed. Yes. No question. And so I think that, you know, there was probably a little bit of, of pressure on both sides. So, you know, a number of factors that again, and were probably sped up by what happened at the masters. And again, those players getting together and playing against each other again and realizing how much they miss it. And I wonder if a little bit of it was player driven from both sides as well although uh I, I it definitely doesn't seem as though the pga tour players were necessarily pushing for this uh in recent weeks but yeah I, again this is all stuff we're going to get more details on a lot of, i'm sure there will be a ton of behind the scenes things even you know i'm sure some of it will come out quickly much of it might come out a year from now, months down the road, like we'll get a story at some point in the athletic that was like the secret conversation right. between so and so <laughs> that set the the live PGA merger into motion. There will be something where uh, we get we finally get a behind the scenes story that reveals a lot of the details of how this actually came to be. And I also find it interesting that last week at the memorial, the PGA Tour floated. Uh, a um, sample schedule for 2024. No tournament names next to anything, but just kind of to show the rhythms of back-to-back -back designated events, three non-designated events, on, off, on, off, you know, uh, those type of sequences. But it's interesting that they, other than the majors, uh, and even then they really didn't put, attach any names to any dates. And I wonder now if, they purposely took all the names off that sample schedule, knowing that they were going to have to put a few team events into that January to August schedule. And I'll say, too, that I would not be surprised if perhaps the team events, uh, a, ch a good chunk of that season, maybe the last third of the season, maybe even the last half of the season, takes place after the FedEx Cup in the fall so that they don't disrupt that many events um, that are currently on the schedule because we just had an announcement that the Houston Open is moving from fall to spring. It's going to take the spot of the... Um, uh, of the former Mexico... Is it the Mexico Open or the... Uh, anyway. Um, but there's a lot of moving parts just in the scheduling, but everybody was wondering, what's going to happen with, with the PGA Tour in the fall? Now I think we're going to see, and maybe maybe that whole you know kind of team stretch run playoff push type of thing goes into September October, um, and that's also a time where the PGA Tour has wanted to avoid football season. That does not mean that LIV or whatever this entity is, the the new team concept doesn't pick that time of year to go take it to Australia and Singapore and Saudi Arabia and South Africa. Yeah. So I, all that will be interesting to see again, 
we're <laughs> kind of uh, really talking through this with you in the moment right now. We talked for maybe 15 minutes on this before we went even went on the air. Uh, so I'm sure we'll have more time over the week to gather more information, gather our thoughts a little bit more, and and discuss this further. You're pretty much getting just our raw reaction to this news right now. But uh, as far as everything that I had notes on, that pretty much covers it. Jeff, any any more thoughts for today before we head into a week of uh, what I'm sure will be um, a lot of information being disclosed. Is there, there does the Canadian Open actually still going to take place this week? <laughs> I, I think so. Uh, we're going to discuss that in the next segment, I suppose. But I think we're, you and I are just sitting here like everybody else, both golf media, golf officials, golf fans saying, wow, and now what are the details? Mm-hmm. And we'll we could probably have a whole nother segment in two weeks when the details start coming out. I don't think they'll do anything next week because it's U.S. Open week and yeah. they don't want to take away from a major. But especially with another designated event right after the U.S. Open at the at the Travelers Championship, they're going to be obviously a ton of high-level PGA Tour players over there making the trip from LACC all the way to Hartford, Connecticut. And I think that... That may be where the details start trickling out is at some meetings in Hartford. Yeah, so I'll be interested to see exactly how that goes. Again, we'll update you next week if we have more. Of course, as things come out, we'll talk about it on the podcast. And you can also, I'm sure, catch up on a lot of these details in the Daily Sun. As you know, Again, we'll get more reporting and stuff like that coming throughout the the next couple of weeks, I'm sure. And there will be plenty of player reactions. Uh, again, all kinds of news all week. I'm sure it will be... Uh, kind of overshadowing, unfortunately, the Canadian Open, which we've talked about before, uh, how it's already kind of gotten a little bit of a too much of a backseat right. on the PGA Tour schedule. Now it's going to be really secondary to this outside the course conversation. And really, if it wasn't for we, the fact that we have the Stanley Cup finals and the NBA finals, the golf would be dominating every sports headline this week. Yeah. So and, and I think at least for a couple of days, it's, it's going to it's going to have to. So uh, it, I will say one one definite positive, at least from our standpoint, is going to generate a lot of content for the podcast. You know how much schedule talk we're going to be able to <laughs> get into? <laughs> so apologies in advance for the the tangents that Jeff and I are going to indulge ourselves with. Have we ever done a <laughs> breakdown of how much time we've sp- spent talking about golf scheduling in one way shape or form over the course of our 100 episodes oh i don't have enough time to go back through the episodes and figure it out but i wouldn't even know where to begin looking (laughs) it's it's been a while but uh yeah i'm I'm sure there'll be more of that coming from us soon enough so that's going to do it though for the first segment we're going to take a quick break we'll come back we'll talk about actual golf what happened over the past weekend uh which it was a really really great weekend of golf it was (laughs) a historic weekend yes and it's going to take us 30 minutes to get to it so uh we'll be back with that in just a moment. Thank you. 
Getting into discussion of actual golf that has been played and will be played uh, forthcoming, uh, we, Jeff and I, you and I both expected Rose Zhang to be a star on the LPGA. I don't think either of us expected it to happen this quickly. In her debut event, she wins the Mizuho Americas Open. I was shocked when I got the update. I made the mistake of not watching, of defaulting to the memorial, but you were tuned in for this. I, I knew that she was going to have a quality finish. Uh, there, there are two amateur women's amateur golfers that, that if you've been a long time listener to the podcast, I have been high on for months and months and months. One is Anna Davis, who, by the way, finished second in the AJGA part of this event. Uh, and the other is Rose. And Rose has done so much so quickly. She has spent a record number of weeks before turning professional. She holds the record for longest period of time at the top of the world amateur rankings, almost three years. She set NCAA records for the most career tournaments won. She is the only back-to-back -back winner of the NCAA championship. She has won the... Augusta National Women's Amateur. And so you, you know that she's going to come out and she's going to have some quality starts. And I honestly expected, hey, she's good enough to finish top 10 in this field. And the fact that she was tied for seventh after the opening round, after a 70, with all of the interviews and, and publicity that she went through, and it's like, this is going to be a fun ride. And then the fact that she moved to the top of the leaderboard after three rounds, you, that was appointment viewing for me on Sunday to see if she could close it out. And it wasn't easy. She didn't make a birdie all day, but she played enough quality golf to hold off Jennifer Cupcho in a playoff. Yeah, and Jennifer Cupcho, another player that we've talked about, sort of a rising star on the LPGA. But you also talk when you talk about Nelly Korda, you talk about Lydia Ko, Jin Young Ko, these players who have sort of elevated the profile of the league. Rose Zhang, it seems like, could be the biggest star that we've had on the LPGA in a long time. She like, very I mean, well she, <laughs> this is the sort of story that grabs a national audience, an international audience, uh, and gets people to, to tune in to at least try to find out what she's doing. I mean, she is the sort of player who can again, really elevate the profile of a tour like this. Yeah, and you think of some of the great amateurs that have stepped over to the LPGA with a certain amount of hype. You can think of Lydia Ko uh, and all the, all the success that she had as a junior and an amateur coming out of New Zealand, and she is the previous record holder for the longest time at world number one. You think of Brooke Henderson, who came out and won an LPGA event as an amateur. You think of Michelle Wee, Morgan Pressel. Those were all really big spotlight type debuts, some better than others, but nobody, nobody has done what Rose has done 
Two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago now, she won an NCAA championship. Uh, and, and then she went and, and helped her team to the semifinals of the team event. And two weeks later, she's now an LPGA champion. She is already at the top of the rookie of the year list. She's like 10th in, on the player of the year list or some just outside the top 10. And I think the fact that she has been able to do what nobody has done since 1951, all of a sudden bring, with all of this other legal LIV stuff going on, if you want to look over at the women's side, Rose Zhang is now the spotlight of women's golf until further notice. Yeah, and I, you know, we always hesitate to invoke the name Tiger Woods, but you think about the the sort of resume that he had. There had been this national infatuation with him, what he'd done at the amateur level, what he'd done as a collegiate player at Stanford. There was so much excitement around him joining the PGA, and Rose, I think, should have had maybe the same sort of attention. And obviously, not saying that Rose Zhang is going to be the Tiger Woods of the LPGA. There are only so many Tiger Woodses in the history. That's of one you always just sports. kind of put on the shelf. We're not going to make that comparison yes. until it's absolutely necessary. Right, but at the same time, her resume coming in is not that different and no. in some ways is more impressive. Like you said, the only women's back-to-back NCAA individual champion, and she's coming in with all this momentum. And again, we're talking about for her to reach the levels that we've you know, discussed here talking about changing the fate of a tour. You have to sustain this over a long time. But right now, this this feels like lightning in a bottle. If at least this moment, this is one of the highlights of the last couple of years for the LPGA. And there have been some great moments, a lot of great championships, some great champions. But this, at least right now, is, is Rose Jung's moment in the spotlight. And I have to think, though, that she'll be around for a long time. And this could be the very beginning of a very, very impressive career that's going to grab some eyeballs uh, from places that were not watching women's golf before. Absolutely. And uh, I heard it said over the weekend, you can't say a star is born because she's already there. Right. But the fact that a star is now kind of up in the hemisphere where she should be and just the possibilities uh, we've been looking for somebody to captivate the uh, the American golf fan on the women's side for the longest time. And Nellie Corda has gotten us to a certain point, and Lexi Thompson has gotten us to a certain point. But I think Rose, uh, because of uh, her cross-cultural background and her just success at every level and her record-breaking success at every level, and she is as nice a person as you will ever find. And uh, I did have a chance to work with her at a junior tournament four years ago. I experienced it. Uh, And they say that that she has not changed. And you could kind of see it in the celebration afterwards. She was... She was uh, stunned with her own success. She was completely gracious with all of these little junior golfers who not that long ago were her peers uh, running up on the green and giving her roses. And she had this huge bouquet of roses at the end, and she was completely gracious about that. I think she's going to be such a great ambassador for the LPGA and women's golf in general. And uh, it's all... it's always hard to predict Lydia Ko came out like gangbusters and fell off the map a little bit and then was player of the year last year. Uh, Brooke Henderson has had really consistent performances going back to when she was first coming out on tour in 2017. But I think this is something that maybe we haven't seen. I, you know, 
even with Michelle Wee, the, the hype was bigger for Michelle Wee. And maybe that's why we were a little bit more cautious with Rose. But Rose has lived up to the hype. Even Tiger Woods, by the way, did not win his PGA Tour day. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah, there were some bumps in the road for Tiger when he first got there. There was all kinds of excitement, and it took a while for him it to— took a half dozen starts, yeah. yeah. to really become Tiger Woods. But that's that's the thing, is we're talking about somebody who is on that same sort of trajectory within the women's game. And so I, this is— Right now, again, if it weren't for the thing that we just had to spend 30 minutes talking about, this would be the biggest story in golf. And I would say one of the biggest stories in sports right now. And I think that people need to start paying attention to Rose Young and what she's doing. And I do want to say the moment on the on the 18th green was really cool with the AGJ, uh, AJGA players coming out to give her the roses, them celebrating with her. And I think that that did kind of, you know, just validate what you said about what a, what kind of person she is that her former competitors and peers were were so eager to celebrate her in yes that moment. absolutely and, and even jennifer cupcho her playoff opponent who was the first player to throw water on her yeah <laughs> it was cupcho out of her own bottle standing at the edge of the green waiting to congratulate her uh and and uh it like i say it just she crosses so many lines and her youth makes her now an, an instant icon on the AJGA and, and junior golf circuit. Uh, everybody would love to be at the level, you know, in five, six, seven, eight years that Rose is and uh, just a great ambassador for the game. And it, it was kind of cool. You couldn't tell it on, on camera, but later on, somebody had said the first words out of her mouth after the final putt dropped were, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, really, really incredible stuff. We also had a great uh, event over on the PGA Tour, the Memorial Tournament, always a fun one, Jack Nicholas's tournament up in Columbus, and Victor Hovland had to take it to a playoff to win it, but Big Vic up on the podium at the end holding that trophy. You, you did a very good job of, of coming from behind. A little bit of stumble by Denny McCarthy, got himself in trouble on 18, really twice, uh, once in regulation, once in the playoff. But uh, I, I think that uh, this is the type of golf that we've been expecting out of Victor Hovland. It's only his fourth PGA Tour win, but look at the number of top fives and top tens that he has had in recent months. He is one of those guys that has now really put himself in position to win uh, just about everywhere that uh, he plays. And I mean, it was just what, three weeks ago? that he came this close to taking Brooks Kepka yep. down to the wire at the PGA Championship, except for that one awful bunker shot that uh, was, A, struck not struck that well, but then, B, even worse luck when it plugged in the lip. But uh, uh, this is the type of golf that we saw from him as an amateur. This is the type of golf that we saw from him as a junior. And uh, it, it took him a little bit longer than the Colin Morikawas of the world, so to speak. But... I've always thought that Victor Hovland would have the most staying power. And fortunately, I think, fortunately for me, right? Uh, but he's starting to prove that. I, it's been too long since I asked you a question about Jordan Spieth. He actually ended up playing pretty well over the weekend, had a really good Friday, Saturday, managed to hang around on Sunday. Uh, I think we were pretty worried about that wrist injury. Uh, he dropped out of the AT&T Byron Nelson. But other than that, hasn't really skipped a tournament or an event that we thought that he would normally play. Do you think that he's 
maybe not all the way recovered, but at least to the point that that's not really going to affect his game, especially as we come up on the U.S. Open. I think especially so. I think if it was going to affect his U.S. Open participation, we would not have seen him at Muirfield Village. But I think it's one of those injuries where it's probably to the point now where it may be a little bit niggling. The doctors have probably said, ice it. Don't take any stupid chances with a tree root. And uh, you'll probably be okay at least through four rounds at L.A. Country Club. And there's always that saying, I'm sure you've heard it, you know, kind of beware the sick or injured golfer. And I think what may be part of this, too, is that with Jordan, we know how his brain operates at about 200 miles an hour, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Now with the wrist injury and maybe having to just be a little bit more cautious and uh, what kind of shot can I execute where I'm not thinking about four different options? This is what I have to do. And maybe I've shortened my swing a little bit and maybe I'm not taking quite as bit of a divot. Sometimes those things actually turn out to be a benefit because now they forced you to go back to playing within yourself. And I think that's what we're seeing with Jordan a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about this same thing, that we're not going to see the best speed if he's playing conservatively, but we're also not going to see that that it's that same speed that gets himself into this trouble, like this madcap artist who will try to pull off these wild shots and ends up putting himself in trouble so often. And I just wondered if he just played really steady golf like this all the time, maybe he's not going to win. He's probably not going to win a major playing that way. Like he needs to be peak speed yes. to do that. But he hasn't... Uh, you know, if he's playing more conservatively, he's not putting himself in the water. He's not putting himself 30 yards into the rough. He's never had to play long to play well. And so if he's not being ambitious with the driver because of the wrist, if he's not trying to shape wild stingers to get close to the green from further out than he normally would in a not great lie, I mean, those are things that you're avoiding compounding those mistakes, which is always where he's gotten into trouble in some of these tournaments. And so I'm wondering if as long as he has this wrist injury and maybe if he decides to play this way moving forward, if he's just going to be in the top 10 of every tournament he ever plays, because we've seen when he plays steady golf, he is that good. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think that it's okay to be the mad genius, but you don't have to be the mad genius (laughs) for 18 holes. You you pick your spots. um, And, and, Honestly, if you pick your spots right, those are the shots that typically win you big tournaments because you've pulled something out when you absolutely needed it, but you didn't put yourself in trouble eight holes ago with a shot that you really didn't need to attempt. And so I think that uh, the golf world uh, should be bullish on Jordan Spieth right now. LA Country Club, I don't think I've got to go back and look at the yardages and yeah, we'll I really haven't gotten it into that. Week, but yeah. I don't think LA Country Club is going to be one of those masterfully long courses cuz uh in LA you're kind of bound by yeah. by the the territory and so uh the USGA will probably do a little bit more to make it difficult in terms of fairway width and and movable tees and odd angles but you're not going to have to negotiate a 7700 yard course and I think that plays into Jordan Spieth's wheelhouse. Yeah, and we uh, one other thing. We've also seen the mad genius become the very visibly frustrated genius yes. in a lot of situations. <laughs> and I felt like he was very composed this past weekend. And it's probably because he wasn't putting himself in spots that where he frustrates himself. So and and uh, don't forget, too, that before his recent victory, uh, so Jordan Spieth's second to last victory, if I'm not mistaken, was at Pebble Beach. And is 
the one thing about Pebble Beach is if you go too far on Mad Genius, you're in the ocean. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's not a bad way for him to be playing. It might not be the most entertaining way for him to be playing. The most fun is when he's in contention on Sunday in a major and he's five shots back and he has to do wild stuff. But from a rooting for Jordan Spieth to win perspective or to for Jordan Spieth to do well perspective. This is not a bad place to be. And I, I was interested. I was, uh, you know, a little bit nervous. I was in a fantasy golf thing this weekend and I didn't want to take him because I was worried about the wrist injury. And then I just watched him all weekend and I was like, he's playing really, really well. I like your your thought process there behind it. We also had U.S. Open qualifying, speaking of L.A. Country Club. This past weekend, Monday, is referred to as the longest day in golf. Guys playing 36 holes over the course of a day to try and get a spot in the third major of the year. Jeff, there were a couple big names, actually, that had to go through that qualifying process to get in. Uh, there were actually a, a number of big names that, that had to go through it, and not everybody did. That's yeah. the hardest part, especially if you're coming off – 72 tough holes at Memorial, you got 36 more in you the day after. Uh, sometimes guys just hit the wall, and I've, I've seen it year after year after year, but some guys catch a little lightning in a bottle and uh, at, you know over at Springfield Country Club, which uh, is just down the highway. You, you're an Ohio guy. You know this yep. uh, from, uh, from your field village, but, uh, uh yeah, you take and, 70 over it's <laughs> maybe an hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, uh, you know, guy, guys like Taylor Pendrith and Nick Hardy from the PGA tour got on the, maybe the most competitive place, which is good and bad. I, and I find it interesting to hear philosophy of players. Do you want to enter the one that has all the PGA tour players because they've got 11 spots available? Or do you feel like you've got a better chance if you go to one with not so many spots but not such a strong field but uh over at at brookside in the lakes which is kind of the place for anybody on the pga tour to do their qualifying but the names the name that jumps out the most uh has you know the village's tie but Stuart sink at age 50 just turned age 50 is going to be part of the u.s open at la country club he was I think tied for seventh. No, I'm sorry, tied for third, actually. That's a long list of minus nines there that I'm looking at. Uh, also in that group is Eric Cole, the runner-up at the Honda Classic, the son of Laura Baugh, uh, formerly of the LPGA. Uh, Luke List is on that uh, qualifying list. Uh, Patrick Rogers, Kevin Streelman. So that's maybe where the biggest names came out. But uh, you can also see at, at some of these other spots, the biggest one would be Sergio Garcia, and they did have one qualifier the Monday before in Texas that Sergio signed up for. Uh, his exemption for winning the 2017 Masters has run out, and his world golf ranking obviously has taken a nosedive. So the fact that he had to go through qualifying, chose to go through qualifying, but he is in the U.S. Open at L.A. Country Club. Uh, he's one of, I believe it's four LIV golfers. Uh, Sebastian Munoz got in, Carlos Ortiz got in, and David Pooj, uh, all were able to get through the qualifying. And I actually thought very early this year when the world golf rankings started to take that long slide for all of these LIV players, how many are actually going to sign up for that qualifier and see how many they can use to flood the zone? And maybe this is the only time that'll have to happen, considering what we talked about for 30 minutes in the last segment. But uh, it, it was interesting. I would say two dozen. 
at least of the LIV golfers, maybe maybe closer to three dozen, signed up to take their chances. It's still not an easy thing to do, and a lot of them failed. But uh, it was nice to see that they actually made the attempt to, to get in the old-fashioned way. Yeah. Well, uh, we do have more golf coming up this weekend. Obviously, the Canadian Open, which, again, hopefully will not be overshadowed by the merger talks. Uh, have to expect that, at least to a certain extent, we will see a good deal of that come up over the course of the weekend. But uh, walk us through what we can expect with that one and what else is on the golf calendar. Well, the uh, the Canadian Open is a chance for a three-peat and a, a big-name three-peat. There's been no uh, person that has won the Canadian Open in three consecutive years, and Rory McIlroy actually has the chance to do that. Now, it's kind of a disjointed three-peat because he won in 2019. Right. They didn't play it in 20. They didn't play it in 21. They came back in 22 at a completely different golf course. And he won it again, so uh, he has a chance for a three-peat this year. Um, I suppose his chances are as good as a Canadian actually winning the Canadian Open because nobody from Canada has won the Canadian Open since 1954. And if you need perspective on that, Arnold Palmer has won the Canadian Open more recently (laughs) than a Canadian Canadian has. Oh, that's a bummer. Now we'll have Corey Connors and and all of those guys to to give it to, you know a great shot. Mike Weir came close. Uh, what was it? Two thousand four. Uh, VJ Singh beat him in a playoff in what had to be one of the saddest days for Canadian golf of all time. But uh, it's a good field. Um, Matt Fitzpatrick, uh, who won the uh, at Hilton Head, now goes for the newly crowned RBC double. <laughs> And so he'll be in the field. We'll see Justin Rose, Sam Burns, Cam Young, um, and uh, Tommy Fleetwood, Tyrrell Hatton, Shane Lowry. Uh, It's not a designated event, but I think a lot of guys want to maybe actually get a running start at the U.S. Open for those who have qualified. And for those that have not qualified for the U.S. Open, they can take a really hard run at getting this jewel of the triple crown so to speak and then take next week off there it is and on the lpga we have the Shoprite classic which uh is at uh, its longtime venue in atlantic city and unfortunately we will not see rose zhang at the Shoprite classic even though she's now an lpga member and ready to go she's got to pack up her dorm back at stanford <laughs> and move out and take three tests and uh, kind of wrap that part of her life up before she uh, moves on to the Meyer Classic in a couple of weeks. So uh, Rose will not be there, but uh, we will see Lexi Thompson. That was actually her last LPGA Tour win way back in 2019. Celine Boutier is the defending title or defending champion. Uh, Brooke Henderson will be back there. Um, you'll see Atitikul, who played with Rose in the final group last uh, Sunday over at Mizuno. I said it now. <laughs> who played in the final group uh, with Rose uh, last Sunday at the Mizuho Americas Open. So uh, a good field. And by the way, that is not a 72-hole event. This is one of, I think, two events left on the LPGA schedule that still goes just 54 holes. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. We'll talk more about it next week. And of course, again, update you on all forthcoming merger news that we receive over the course of this week. So that'll do it for golf, though. We're finally going to wrap on the subject. We'll take one quick break, and then we'll be back to finish up with a discussion of the Villages SC and where they stand early in the season right after this.
We're going to move off the golf course and onto the soccer pitch for the third segment of the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. Jeff Shane back with you along with Drew Shaltry. And Drew, uh, the Villages SC has gotten off to as good a start as they can. Two games, two wins, uh, and both of them on the road, in fact. Uh, You had a chance to go out there and uh, it was a very uh, dominating win uh, this last weekend at Brevard SC. Yeah, it was pretty much as lopsided a game as we've seen from the Villages SC. Well, maybe not in the last couple of years, but it's the kind of game that we didn't get to see from them last season. The kind of thing that we've come to expect from them when they play, I don't want to necessarily call Brevard lesser competition, but a team over which they have an advantage. And they came out, dominated possession right away, pressed hard, scored a goal, not early, but early enough to really kind of take control of the game. And then a red card to Brevard right before halftime really put them on the back heel. And, uh, you know, Villages SC pressed, got three goals, a 3-0 win, something that, again, we'd expect to see from them a few times a season. There's always one or two teams that they can really get after. And last year when they were having trouble scoring, they didn't do it. So this was a very encouraging sign, I think. I talked last week about I thought that they were... We're going to get back to what we've seen them be in the past, and this is the sort of game that they would win this way in previous years when the offense wasn't as you know constipated as we saw it last season. So uh, this, it was a good sign, a well-played game all the way around, and you know maybe not the nicest introduction to USL League Two, the first ever meeting between these two teams, but. That's you know that's the way that Anderson De Silva wanted them to take care of business in that one, so it was good to see them go and do it. From a Brevard standpoint, you kind of get that rude awakening. This is the level that you have to play to if you want to challenge in what we're calling the group of death in USL 2. Um, how important was it uh, mentally? We talked so much last year about they put all these shots on frame. It went off the post. It went just wide. They make, goalkeeper made a great save, and they're going deep into the match, and they still got a goose egg on the board. The fact that they were able to get one in the first half, how much of a breakthrough was that mentally for all of these players, especially the ones that were around last year? I think it's always a big deal for Anderson De Silva's teams because that's what they want. They want to make sure they get that one because as soon as a team has to chase them from behind, it's going to open up a lot more space, and that just makes it easier for them. They're going to play a, a possession-based game. They want to play a lot of passes. It's all based on opening up space and exploiting that space. And so when they can get that early goal, they're able to take advantage of that more. As soon as a team says, okay, now we have to push a little bit, the Villages is going to say, okay, well, we're going to be better at possessing the ball. So if you're going to have to come press us, we're going to get into these spaces, we're going to cut up your midfield, and then we're going to have a chance for our scorers to get in behind. And that's what we saw, especially in that second half. And again, Brevard was playing man down for that period. That's a really tough position to be in, to go down a goal and then go down a player in just minutes before halftime because it's 1-0 at halftime. The coach is saying, okay, these are the adjustments we can make. These are the subs that are available to me. And then all of a sudden you're down a player and your options are very, very limited because now you have to figure out how to press and defend shorthanded. And so it was almost an impossible task for Brevard. So you have to have a little bit of sympathy for them there. But again, the Villages SC really executed their game plan well. They need to start scoring those early goals. We've seen them struggle to get, they haven't gotten one early yet. We haven't seen one in the first 15 or 20 minutes, which is ideally when they'd like to score that first goal. But these teams, as much as we've said that, you know, Brevard's maybe not up to the standard of competition. These are still very good players. You know, these are college level players, guys who are aspiring to be professionals. So there is 
some level of competency that you're battling against week in and week out in USL too. Even uh, when you're talking about a team that might finish at the bottom of this this division. And again, not really a shameful thing given the competition that's at the top. Absolutely. Goals by Oscar Rosano, Lucas Moro, and Pedro Santos. Which was the best one of the three? Man, that's tough to say. Uh, Lucas's goal was really, really good. His physicality and his speed, uh, the two years that he's been at UCF since his last season at the Villages SC, he's gotten just so much better. I've talked about it already on the podcast, but uh, you really saw it. He was everywhere. He was end-to-end in that game and just absolutely, I don't want to say putting the Villages SC on his back, but really giving Brevard SC more trouble than uh, anyone else on the pitch. I mean, they were so worried about him, and drawing. he was drawing so much defensive attention, and he was still getting the better of the home side pretty much every time and that shot he deserved a goal in that game I'm glad that he got one just because it's the kind of effort where you deserve to show up in the box score and it was a really nice shot right side of the field left-footed shot just beats the keeper to the corner the opposite corner of the net so it was good to see that from him I think Oscar Rosano though his was probably the most satisfying okay he had a tough a tough opener he had a bunch of chances they set him up really well he missed a couple high missed a couple wide his best chance was one that was saved I think I mentioned it last time the keeper miles for Tampa Bay United had to dive back to his left after looking right and just got a paw on that ball by Rosano and uh, it was one that you know when it comes off his foot you're like oh that's a goal that's a that's a play that scores almost every single time and the keeper just gets a hand on it to stop it so uh, I know that he was a little bit frustrated after that opener that he hadn't put away one of those chances so uh, I think this was definitely a gratifying one for him. And now they're 2-0, and and, and they've got the, the full uh, six points off of that. And yet, they're still looking up in the division, and, and I guess it's going to be that way until they have a chance to meet. But uh, Nona FC is the defending division champion, and they do have one more game played. And not only are they 3-0, and but they're 3-0 and with a plus 10 goal differential what's uh, Anderson De Silva and his troops thinking about it right now? I mean, they're not thinking about Nona strongly at the moment. I mean, obviously they have feelings about them. They That is a rivalry. <laughs> it became a rivalry very quickly last year. But they're not focused on Nona and where they are in the standings at the moment. They were in this position last year where they started later than everyone else. They did it again this year. So they're not worried about the points on the table right now and, and the difference with Nona. But I, I just I put it in the notes because I think it is worth discussing that that team is very much back. They're already dominating the competition that they've played so far. It looks like they're going to be just as good as they were last year based on what we've seen from them early and that again we expected it but that is going to be the competition in the southeast division and now these two teams are going to play for one playoff spot so it is significant that they're 3-0 right now we talked about it last week and the week before a loss two losses could put you out of the running And so those head-to-head matches are going to be a huge deal. These matches against other teams are going to be a huge deal. It could come down to goal differential at the end of the season between these two, depending on which way the head-to-head contests go. If they split, uh, if they end up, I I don't remember what uh, with USL two if the first tiebreaker between the two would be goal differential or if it would be the head to head record. But there's a world where it comes down to who has outscored the teams uh, by more over the course of the season. Right now, Nona the pace of their offense putting in more than three goals a game uh, is pretty good. I mean, they're close to four goals a game. They're outscored opponents eleven to one through three matches. So uh, they're uh, they're looking pretty good right now. And the Villages SC is going to be chasing them at least for a while in the standings. 
The Villages beat Tampa Bay United in the opener. Florida Elite, which comes to VHS on Saturday for the home opener, is already 2-1-1. Has this already evolved into a two-team race for the top spot? I don't think we can say that just yet. There are 12 games in the season, and but it, it does almost feel like if the Villages wins this weekend, Florida Elite's in real trouble. Two, yes. Like I said, two losses puts you way behind the eight ball with these two teams. You have to expect that they're going to – that. Uh, the Villages and Nona are going to continue to beat up on Swan City and Brevard. The Villages has mostly home games left already this season. Uh, so, you know, we haven't seen them play at the H.G. Morse range, but I can't imagine that they're not going to make it the same kind of home fortress that the Villages Polo Club was, that their home field was. They're going to have plenty of home support. So, I mean, once you get into the back end of the schedule where I believe it's five of the last six games for the Villages SC are home matches, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a tough place to be. And the, and Florida Elite's going to have to come twice. They're going to have to come to the Villages twice. So they're going to get their first taste of it at the range this weekend. Um, but the Villages knows they can not necessarily eliminate, but take away the chances from a contender this time. This has been a rivalry in the past. They're going to be up for this game, and they've had 10 days to prepare for it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that this is a big game for them. It is a must-win, not in the same way that a Nona game would be, but given the situation, given what's coming up for them with their schedule, they have to win this one. They need the three points. Absolutely, and that is a 7 p.m. kickoff on Saturday. Uh, The Villages SC against Florida Elite. The Villages SC unbeaten in two games. Florida Elite has played four. They are 2-1-1. You mentioned it's coming after a 10-day layoff, but now the games come fast and furious yeah this is why i was saying they have to win this one you're coming off 10 days rest and you're going into a stretch where they're going to play seven games in three weeks in the span of 22 days starting this saturday and ending three saturdays after seven games once every three days essentially Essentially, yeah three to four days between each game so there's you know no room for error there might be a a weather postponement or something like that in there but that just means that you're going to get a dense stretch later so i mean but also all of their road remaining road games are in this stretch. All four road games left on their schedule are going to be played over these three weeks. So if they can take care of business on the road, you get to finish at home. If you can get the game at Nona and do what you need to do against Tampa Bay United again on the road at Florida Elite at Swan City, we're going to get they're going to be in a pretty good spot going into the home stretch of the season because again they're going to have the advantage of playing that stretch run on their home field. A lot of advantages, and and it's weird to think that we are three games into the season, and yet it feels like we're already in this playoff push because of the rules, I understand, and and the fact that uh, Nona is such a strong team, uh, also in the same division, but every game, perhaps more than any other season, is important. Yeah, 100%. You're right. It does feel like we're talking about this earlier than ever, but the stakes are higher. There is less room for error. There's one spot. There are two really strong contenders for, and there are a couple teams who want to be in that hunt and are good enough to be in that hunt. Uh, And, you know, 
even if they're not contending, are good enough to definitely play spoilers. So every single game, the Buffalo understand. I'm sure Nona understands. I'm sure the t- uh, the players on these other teams understand. These are must-win games right now. They, you know, you drop a game, all of a sudden you're depending on someone else to control your destiny. Already in the season, we're at that point. So Nona looks like they could run the table. That's a possibility. And so it might come, again, come down to just those head-to-head games. But that also means you have to take care of every other game on the schedule. So it's going to be a real battle all season long. If there is one, I guess, silver lining to the way that the new division has been arranged, it's that it does create this kind of drama. And from a fan perspective, it's exciting, except that for one of the fan bases, it's going to be really disappointing when your team comes up just short and is you know better than the teams in a lot of other divisions and is not going to have a chance to play in the conference. Kind playoffs. of Yankees and Red Sox, like from the old days. Yeah, pretty wild I, I mean, exactly. That's, that's pretty much what it's like. I mean, this is, you know, as a... <laughs> It's not exactly the same because technically, I guess they did get a spot, but it's like for me as a Pirates fan from 2013 to 2015, they won 95 plus games all three of those years and had to play in that wild card game every single time because the Cardinals were up there winning 99 and 100. So it's, you know, it's it's going to be really tough for fans of either Nona or the Villages SC at the end of this season. It's going to be a really gratifying division win for whichever team does pull it off, but it's going to be really heartbreaking for the other one. Absolutely. And it all begins from a home standpoint this Saturday, 7 p.m. at the HG Morse Range. The Villages SC, Florida Elite, and... Again, if you it's a pressure cooker environment, but from a fan standpoint, we ought to love it. And so get out and take in uh, a, a, what seems to be a really strong squad uh, by the Villages SC that, at least for now, has not encountered too much of an offensive doldrums. And uh, we'll, we'll buckle in for what could be a wild ride here for USL2 this summer. That'll do it for the Daily Sun Sports Podcast. We have talked a ton of golf, and we've also enjoyed a lot of soccer talk here in in the final segment. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And uh, again, just such news coming out, out of the blue, really, from the uh, PGA Tour. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for uh, letting us us walk through it with you for the most part. Essentially, uh, and uh, we'll continue to walk through it with you every week as we learn more details and of course there's other stuff going on uh, in the world of sports we'll talk about the usl2 season we did anybody you know mention that we have a golf major and a couple of tennis majors going on and things like that well how about the fact that we're in the middle of the nba finals right now i'm glad you brought <laughs> we, that we were gonna up talk I, about I it today t- and then we got this news this morning we're like nope it's got to go so and uh you know good luck to to both teams there but uh, thanks for listening thanks for uh continuing to tune in i looked at last week's numbers we had more than a thousand downloads last week and we appreciate every one of those continue to do that download off of spotify and google play and wherever you get your podcast rate us like us hopefully and uh, thanks to you drew for sitting across the table from me thanks to chris siegel and nick feely for letting us do this on a tuesday most weeks and uh, thank you too to the listener so until next week we'll see you out on the playing fields